The infant Corinthian church existed in a culture that was impressed with celebrity ship. There are some areas of commonality between their celebrities and our celebrities. They admired athletes, and we admire athletes. To cite maybe one example, there are many differences too. They admired philosophers, debaters, and the ability to think in general. If the magazine racks at the supermarket are any indication, we admire Kim and Justin and, of course, Brad and Angelina. And let's not forget poor Jennifer. Don't leave her out of the mixture. But most importantly, they, like we, admired arrogance. And they held the view that humility was a sign of weakness, not a virtue. From the beginning of 1 Corinthians until now, Paul has been arguing against that fallacious and dangerous idea. He's been presenting the case that the believer's interests should be drawn toward the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. In chapter 1, verse 19, he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and nullify the cleverness of the clever. Chapter 1, verse 31, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 19, he catches the wise in their cunning. Chapter 3, verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. They had a problem with elevating secular wisdom over the wisdom of God. They were also importing the idea in the church, I mean, of secular celebrity ship. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we found that they had developed preferences with respect to the one who would present them with the word of God. And they began bickering over which servant of the Lord deserved the number one slot in the weekly rankings. The top three at three probably rotated between Paul, Apollos, and Peter. And Paul came down hard on that ugliness, stressing that he and Apollos were mere servants of Christ, and that they had not died for any of them. You recall that, I hope. It's been several weeks. But Paul says, you shouldn't make celebrities out of us. We didn't die for you. That's wrong. It's ugly. You're importing the world's view into the church, and the church is looking no different from the world. We're just switching celebrities. Their celebrities were philosophers. Your celebrities are preachers. And he's saying, that is dead wrong. If there has to be a top three at three or a top five at five, then it needs to be the the number one slot needs to be permanently occupied by Jesus Christ. He's made that point. He's pounded it home over and over and over again. And now, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul will take an opportunity to clarify that in saying that he and Apollos didn't die for anybody, that Jesus Christ deserves the first slide and only Jesus Christ, by saying these things, he's not being critical of Apollos. He's not putting Apollos down. He's not putting Peter down. What he's doing is he's using himself and Apollos as illustrations to make the point. It's not that they should underestimate the importance of a man like Apollos, or himself, to their own spiritual growth. It's that they should keep all of this in its proper perspective. Yes, Apollos is important. Yes, the Apostle Paul is important. 
but they're not Jesus Christ. So it's a matter of perspective for the Apostle Paul here in the last part of chapter 4. His point was, Jesus Christ is to be exalted, not any human servant of Jesus Christ. Not you, not me, and not anybody on television, and not anybody on the radio. We're all servants of Jesus Christ, every single one of us. And any worthy servant of the Lord Jesus Christ will minister, watch this, in humility, just like Paul and Apollos did. So what he's going to say in these last few verses is don't mistake what I said earlier for the fact that servants of God are not important. Of course they're important. But if they're, real, truly, if they're really truly servants of God in the biblical sense, they will minister in humility. And at the end of this chapter, he's going to say, that's what you should be emulating, the humility that is exhibited. But here's the problem. The Corinthians assumed, because of their own cultural norms, that the humility that Paul exhibited, in reality, betrayed inner weakness in the Apostle Paul. They had given in to a deep-seated human desire themselves to rise up an imagined social ladder. And humility was not one of the rungs on the ladder. How far they had strayed from the message of the cross. The message then of these final two paragraphs of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is this. Real power is found in humility, not arrogance. The world may think that that's where power is. But biblically, real power is found in humility, not arrogance. And the second point, don't ever mistake humility for weakness. It's a common mistake, but it's a deadly mistake. Let's read verses 6 through 13 in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figured to apply to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior, and what have you done, or what have you have, what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled, he says in verse 8. You've already become rich. You've already become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands when we're reviled, we blessed, and when we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. When Paul says in verse 6, now these things, he's referring to all that has proceeded from chapter 1 all the way until now. What he's doing is saying, all that material I gave you, let me tell you what that was all about. He's been making the case for the surpassing value of God's wisdom over secular wisdom. And that humility is supreme over pride. And he used himself and Apollos as an illustration. That's what he means by these words. Now these things. Paul 
knowing the Corinthians like he does, knows that their tendency is going to be to misapply the illustration, and he wants to cut that off at the pass, because frankly, he's got some real serious things to start talking to them about in chapters 5 and following, some real serious problems in the church. And unless he gets this humility thing down first, they're not going to receive that criticism they're about to, to get very well at all. There is no problem between Paul and Apollos. They're on the same side. They're on the same team. He has a non-competitive partnership with his brother, Apollos. And that's just something that can't get through the Corinthian grid. That Paul and Apollos loved each other. They weren't in competition with each other. They weren't checking their facts to see how many people attended Paul's Bible study that week. And Paul says, well, I have four more people than you last week, so I must be better than you. There was none of that going on. And the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know that. They're both servants of the Lord. Here's what Paul feared. In speaking to the Corinthian church, he feared that they might think this. Well, Paul says that he's nothing. And Apollos says that he's nothing. And Paul says that he and Apollos are nothing. And the Corinthians say, you know what? I think they're right. They are nothing. You're right. You are nothing. But we're some pretty hot stuff. See the subtlety. You see why he's got to cut this off at the pass right here and right now. The Apostle Paul has been self-effacing, and they're all too ready at this point to agree with him. Yeah, you can't speak. You can't speak, Paul. Not nearly as good as those people we go down the street and listen to speak about philosophy. You're not even in their league. In fact, Paul, we're going to see from what happens here a little bit later. In fact, Paul, we've got money. You don't. You don't even have a house to stay. You're dependent upon our kindness. And you're telling us what to think? You're right, Paul. You are nothing. Now, see, if they think that, then what he's going to tell them in the next few chapters are going to make no sense at all. They're not going to accept any authority because they don't recognize that humility is power. It's not weakness. And we could do the same in our own culture today. We have adopted so many things of the Corinthian culture into the, into the culture that we live in. They didn't get humility. And you know what? Our culture just doesn't get humility either. I rarely see anybody on the cover of People or Time or whatever, Us or whatever these other newspapers are, the magazines that you see when you're checking out and looking at the person in front of you that's only supposed to have 15 or less items, and they got a whole shopping cart full. So Cindy said, just read the magazines. Well, I did that, and this is what I came up with. <laughs> this illustration. So, that's what I get for reading the magazines. I hope you noticed in these verses that, that Paul opens up a serious can of sarcasm with these people in an attempt to get their attention. This is divinely sanctioned sarcasm. Now, one quick note here. Don't try it at home. Sarcasm usually doesn't work when I try it. It, probably, it never works on your wife. So never do it. Don't, never try it with your wife. But it's going to work here. Because when, when he says in verse 8, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings. Then he says, without us. You didn't need us. This is, he's being sarcastic here to the max. And I would indeed that you would have become kings so that we might reign with you. Oh, boy, I wish I had the spiritual life you did, Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has to say. That's just why I say he's opened up a serious can of sarcasm. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death at the end of the line. Not up front, at the end of the line of condemnation. 
Because we become a spectacle to the world, both of angels and men. Now, there's a quick parenthesis here, a quick side issue here in these verses that are dripping with sarcasm. And that is the reality of a supernatural world. You notice here he says that we're a spectacle both to men and to angels. Angels are watching. The real world exists not just in the physical world, but also in the non-physical world, in the supernatural world. That's, that supernatural world is every bit as real as the real physical world. Now, naturalists wouldn't think that. An atheist wouldn't think that. They think that what you see is all there is. But that's not sustainable. And Paul knows that. So he, he lets us know here that angels are watching. They're observing this. Everything. Well, maybe not everything, but the most important things. Angels watch. The angels rejoice when one person comes to salvation. They also rejoice, when I believe, when a believer walks in fellowship with God. But here Paul is using it in a sarcastic way, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that today. We'll wait till it's the primary point of a passage. But angels are watching, and he says, we become a spectacle to everybody, including angels. We're nothing, and you're so great. We're fools for Christ, but you're wise. We're weak, but you're so strong. You're distinguished, but we have no honor whatsoever. We're poor, hungry, thirsty, not very well dressed. And I might add from something that's going to come up later, not very well versed in the skills of public speaking. Without a permanent home, working our tails off. When somebody curses us, we bless them back. And we're persecuted like we're scum. That's what the Corinthians thought of the Apostle Paul and Apollos. And we stand here today, 2,000 years later, appalled by that. But we have in our core the seeds for making the same mistake. For we don't value humility as a culture. At least if you look at the people who are the highest paid, the people on the cover of the magazines, the people who would turn and look if somebody pointed them out on the street... I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else. My wife and I were walking along a city in southern France one time. A very nice city. The, the streets were so beautiful. It's kind of like the Beverly Hills of southern France. We were looking in the shop windows, and I looked over, and I said, Cindy, you're not going to believe who that is across the street. And the street was only a, a very small thing like they have in Europe. I said, that's that supermodel that was on the cover, Sports Illustrated. And she said, yeah, that's the lead singer for the police. You know, they said, we both noticed different things. I don't know why that was. but. <laughs> and so we said, we said... Let's follow them. <laughs> and we did. Just like a bunch of spies. I crossed the street, went and looked at them. Then they went into a pharmacy, and I said, this is enough. <laughs> this is enough. Let's let these people buy their pharmaceuticals without us looking at them. We both looked at ourselves and said, what are we doing? What are we doing here? And we went on down the road. But I know how it is. All of us are affected by this culture that we live in. It's not the humble people that get the gigs on Saturday Night Live. Must not have watched it last night. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how long ago it was. I think it was about 30, 32 years ago. I was at a meeting one night that I think perfectly illustrates this. It was a group of physicians. There were quite a few physicians in the room. Some people were sitting on the outside of this long conference table. And this was a particular meeting where the spouses were invited to, to attend. And I walked in late because I actually had gone to a Bible study first. So I walked in late, as was my custom. And the wives were having their time to talk. If it was husbands, it could have been the same thing. So it's not a thing against wives. 
But the one wife was there saying, and I knew her. I knew what they drove. She drove a new Jaguar. I liked her Jaguar. I had ridden in it before. Nice car. He drove a Mercedes. They lived in a very nice home. Very successful practice. And this woman was talking about, she said they were not believers in the Lord Jesus. This woman was talking about this couple that had come into their office that day. She worked at the office with her husband. And she was saying how this couple had tried to tell them about Jesus. I'm thinking, this is going to be interesting. I wonder what she has to say. Well, they tried to tell us about Jesus and about how we need to trust Jesus to forgive our sins. And she went on and on with this dripping vitriol. Of course, she didn't accept it. And she said, then they walked out, then they left, and they were all smiling, and they left. And, and I looked out the window, and they got into a station wagon, a Chevrolet station wagon. And they wanted me to listen to them. That's what's happening here in this passage. They're looking at the Apostle Paul, who's making tents in their town to make a living, and they're saying, we got plenty of money, we don't need you. They're well-dressed. The Apostle Paul's not well-dressed. They listen to people that are better public speakers than the Apostle Paul. said, what do you have to bring to us? And Paul's saying, you missed the point, fellas and girls. You missed it entirely. And that one woman missed it. It was terrible. So now Paul's opened up that can. It's all out there. We all see it. And in verse 14, it's like he pauses and takes a deep breath. Okay, now that I've gotten your attention, I hope by now you've gotten the point that you're not that smart, you're not that wealthy, you're not that good looking, you're not that articulate that you don't need God. Yeah, you may not need me, that's true, but you do need the one that I represent. So in verse 14, he says, I don't write these things to you to shame you. But to admonish you, as my beloved children, the Apostle Paul, all the Apostles are this way. Boy, when they get the rod out and they spank them, they make sure that those people understand that they are loved. The first and I think the only time I ever had to give my daughter a little swat on the rear end, she cried and cried and I sat there in the bed with her and we stayed an hour, hour, hour and a half till, and I was explaining to her that I loved her and that I only, had, only did it because she had to never do that again. I don't remember what it was. Finally, Cindy came in and said, would you let her go to bed? She's here torturing her by keeping her up and all this time telling her how much you love her. I felt bad, but what Paul's saying is, listen, I love you, you're my child. I'm not saying this to hurt you. I'm not saying this to shame you. To encourage you is what he's doing. New uh, new oh. In verse 14, I want to admonish you. I want to encourage you. I want to warn you against the destructive nature of this. Not to hurt you, I want to help you. Because you're my beloved children. For if you were were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I become your father through the gospel. What he's telling you is, yeah, you can have all these Bible teachers come in. You can have all these philosophers come in. All these people can teach you. But I led you to the Lord. Now, I didn't do it. The Holy Spirit did it through me. But there's a special relationship you and I have. I don't want your destruction I want your edification. I want your maturity. So please don't take this wrong, he's saying. I love you. And I'm your spiritual father. This is where when people use that terminology, this is where it comes from. In other words, the one that led you to the Lord, understanding that we only have one father, and that's God the Father. And then in verse 16, he says something almost odd. He says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. 
Instead of imitating the culture, let's pause, let's take a deep breath. I hope I got your attention. Don't imitate them. Imitate me. And what he's saying is not me and my personality and my preaching style and what I wear and my likes and my dislikes and my idiosyncrasies. Imitate my humility because I'm imitating Christ. That's Philippians chapter 2. Christ was humble. He's the example for all of us. So many people see a pastor or see an evangelist or see someone on television because if they're on television, they must be good, right? You know, they buy that time on the air. They raise money from you and then they buy the time. That's why they're celebrities and nothing against them. But I'm just saying, let's keep this in perspective. Let's not imitate the way they wear their hair or their shirts or their clothing or their preaching style. In the basement of the Dallas Seminary's library, there is a lab down there, or there was many years ago, where there were machines where you could watch video. One day I'm walking by early in the morning, going to do some studying down there myself, and I see a fellow down there that was a good guy. I knew him. And he had a tape of Chuck Swindoll on the video. And he had earphones in, and he was watching Chuck, but he was practicing Chuck's move. You know, everybody's got to move. This Chuck's move is like this. He, he rattles and shakes his hands. I can't do it. It would give me a, a headache. But Chuck can do it. He gets away with it. But it's that's Chuck. Chuck's not imitating anybody else. That's who he is. And it looked most unlovely. And if Chuck would have happened to walk by while that guy was practicing the move, I think Chuck would have jerked those. The old Marine and Chuck would have jerked those headphones off and said, Don't do that. Don't imitate that. If there's anything in me I want you to imitate... It's my love for the Lord, my own humility. Now, Chuck probably wouldn't have said that because it would come out sounding wrong, but the Apostle Paul can say it. This is straight from the Holy Spirit. I exhort you to be imitators of me. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, my teaching and my actions, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. This is nothing just for you. I'm not picking on you, Corinthians. This is the same thing I'm teaching, and he's writing this from Ephesus. This is the same thing I'm teaching in Ephesus. Then in verse 18, he gets serious again. Now, some of you have become arrogant, as though I was not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Paul's saying, you can talk all the trash you want to talk, but I am coming. It's a lot easier to talk behind my back than to my face. And I'm coming to see you. And when I come, we're going to see where the real power lies. Does the real power lie in all this trash talking that you're doing? Or does the real power lie in the Holy Spirit's ministry in each one of our lives and in humility? Verse 20 says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words. This word is logos, but it's used a different way than it's typically used. This This is more for rhetoric here. It's not in words, but it's in power. And power is found in humility through the Holy Spirit. So he ends up fairly severely. And I hate to end it this way today, but we're out of time. But he ends up by saying, what do you desire? Just what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Shall I come to you with my belt off, fixing to whoop you? And I will if that's what it takes. Or would you prefer that I come in gentleness and, by implication, in humility? 
Would you prefer that or would you prefer it coming disciplined? We can do this the easy way or the hard way. Take your pick. Real power is found in humility, not arrogance. And we should never, ever, ever mistake humility for weakness.